So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we're really excited to be joined by James Robinson. James Robinson is a professor at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy and a research fellow at the Enber and CEPR. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you very much. Well, today we're going to be talking about the origins of the Industrial Revolution. It's something I'm really interested in because I I teach it in in my 10th grade history class. You co-authored a wonderful article that I read on Vox EU where you you asked the question, which has been asked many times before, why did the Industrial Revolution happen in England and not, say, France or the Low Countries? And you run through a, a bunch of different hypotheses. And at the end, you say, well, it's sort of none of the above. In fact, we think it may have to do with the dissolution of the monasteries in England. So um, let's jump right into it. What is your what is your thesis? Yeah, I think you know. I think I think the way to think about this is, is to sort of put it in a bigger, you know, bigger picture to do with institutions, you know, and and economic institutions. I think you know many people would argue that the feudal world, you know, was characterized by economic institutions with respect to serfdom in the labor market, you know, in the land market, which were which were really not kind of compatible with markets and with modern economic growth or the development of kind of modern capitalist economy, you know, which needs markets, financial markets, labor markets, land markets. So, so, so I think what's interesting about the dissolution of the monasteries, and that's the way we think about it, is it's a sort of, it's like a natural experiment in, in the sort of, in feudal institutions. You know, like one of the things that seems to be, seems to characterize England, you know, you mentioned, you know, you know, this, these puzzles about why did, in, you know, England industrialize you know, before France or Germany or whatever. I think one thing you see at a sort of stylized level is that these feudal institutions crumbled much earlier in England than they did elsewhere in Western Europe. And I think many people have thought, you know, that's for the reasons I was discussing, that's a key part of this story about why the Industrial Revolution happened in England, that, you know, feudalism disappeared earlier. You know, when, at the time of the French Revolution, you know, the National Assembly uh, passed a decree abolishing feudalism, you know, well, that would have been impossible to imagine in Britain in, you know, in 1790, or whatever it was, you know, because it had already disappeared hundreds of years ago. So, so I think what we're trying to use, to, uh, you know, the, 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 this abolition of the monasteries when Henry VIII kind of breaks with the Catholic Church, expropriates all the land of the monasteries, which was about a third of all the agricultural land in England, and then he sells it off. That's a sort of enormous shock to the system. Uh, and, you know, we're trying to use that as a, as a sort of source of variation in the incidence of feudalism to sort of say these monastic lands were kind of much less feudal than than the other lands. And so then we can sort of use that to compare, you know, okay, so now these lands are less feudal than the other ones. Do we see more industrialization, more investment, more innovation, more structural change on these less feudal lands? So it's sort of like taking this big hypothesis about feudalism or not, and using this as a source of variation within England to try to say something about that question. You know, does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. So just so I have it clear, Henry comes in, he expropriates the land from the church or dissolves the monasteries, and then all of a sudden there's now a a market for land? 
Yeah, exactly. So, so that you know, his his original idea actually was not to expropriate the land, but was to just kind of redirect all the income that they sent to the Catholic Church in Rome to himself. <laughs> and and so that you know, but that's why he he actually implemented this 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 valor ecclesiasticus, this very kind of detailed survey of all these monastic assets. That's the data source that we digitize, basically, that allows us to. To look at this empirically, and then he changed his mind and thought, you know, you know what? Like, let's just take all the land. So, so his initial, you know, he changed his mind, and then he just expro- basically expropriates all the, the monastic properties, and then he sold them off. You know, he generated to generate income for for the crown. Essentially, he wanted to invade France. He didn't have money, so so the land quickly gets sold off and creates this enormous land market. You know, that basically hadn't existed before. So at least this huge reshuffling of these. Properties, you know, critically properties which were not kind of encumbered with feudal tenancies. That's a key part of the argument. So a couple of questions. First, who's buying the land? Is it this nascent merchant class? Yeah, so that's a complicated question. We don't have detailed records of, you know, these individual transactions, you know. So, 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 you know, so so it's difficult to look at that, except in a very fragment. You know, we have some records from particular counties where we can look at this in more detail. But the argument that goes back to the work of the great economic historian R. H. Tawney, you know, in in the 1940s, was this this sort of creates an opportunity for this new class of people that get called the gentry to sort of expand and and flourish. You know, so suddenly there's all this land available. And these gentry people are able to buy up this land and accumulate bigger farms. And, you know, and so it sort of allows this commercially minded agricultural elite to sort of get traction. You know, before that, you know, monastic monasteries couldn't buy or sell land, basically, you know, so it was impossible to buy land off the monasteries. So there was huge amounts of land which were just not on the land market, essentially. And so it creates this opportunity for this gentry to emerge, and, and 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 yeah. So that's, but it's very difficult to, you know, it's difficult to know to answer the question like who specifically bought different pieces of land. You know, we have anecdotes, but and we talk about some of that in the appendix, but it's difficult to get a systematic picture. And again, forgive me for my ignorance on, about this, but were there lots of serfs living on the monastic land, and then? All of a sudden, they have to find somewhere to go. The serfdom had really disappeared by that time. But that, but what's what's distinct about the monastic lands is that actually monastic properties were much less encumbered by the legacy of feudal contractual relationships. So 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 you know there was a particular type of tenancy which was called copyhold, uh, which was which was more or less absent in monastic lands. So copyhold tenancy was very common outside monastic lands and it was a sort of legacy of serfdom and copyhold essentially fixed agricultural rents uh, in, in perpetuity so 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 that that was you know so if you were a you know you were a kind of enterprising farmer and you bought land which had copyhold tenants sitting on it that seriously undermined your investments you know because because they paid a fixed rent. So if you invested mm. in the land, all the benefits would have just accrued to the copyholders. But these copyhold tenancies were, were, were they were absent, effectively absent on monastic lands. And so, so they were, you know, they, you could write whatever contract you like and, you know, you could charge the tenants the economic value of the, the rent. And, and so, so they, they were kind of much more, 
monastic land was much more conducive to writing kind of commercial and economic contracts than this land which was encumbered by copyhold tenancy. So this starts in, in 1534 with Henry. Do other countries in Europe which had experienced the Protestant Reformation, you know, I'm thinking Germany, the Lowlands, do you start to see those countries look towards England and say, oh, like we ought to be doing the same thing with monastic property? Well, I mean, that does happen. I'm not sure I know enough about the facts. You know, I think monastic properties did get expropriated in other parts of Europe. Obviously, the Catholic Church, you know, was much stronger in some parts of Europe, uh, like in France or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. And in, But in parts of Germany, obviously, you know, there was the Reformation and princes broke with Rome and, you know, embraced Protestantism, Lutheranism, Calvinism, etc. And, and, you know, there was... Certainly, monastic properties did get uh, expropriated in parts of Germany as well, but uh, but I, I've never seen systematic information on that. So, so you know, in some sense, what allows this study to take place is that Henry VIII conducted this enormously detailed survey of monastic properties in Britain. You know, I've never seen a source like that for for any other European country. So. When I was in college, I read a book called Economics Explained by, by Halbrunner and Thoreau. And in the first chapter, they have a, well, they have the first chapter called Capitalism, Where Do We Come From? And they lay out a, a, a narrative, which is basically after 1492, you have lots of gold and silver flowing into Europe from the Americas. This creates inflationary pressures and landlords basically can't afford to keep serfs on their land anymore. They free the serfs, now the land becomes open, and then there's a, a, a labor market and a land market, and then you get the introduction of this thing called capital. And it's kind of a, a, a neat story. It's one that I've been teaching the students for 15 years now. How accurate is that story? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's, I'm not sure that's right, actually. I mean, I think that the conventional wisdom now in economic history, for example, about the collapse of serfdom, would be in the labor market, would be it's the Black Death in the 1340s, you know, that really does that. You know, there's a very recent book by uh, Mark Bailey, who's one of the most distinguished medieval economic historians in Britain, looking in detail at the collapse of serfdom, you know, in the second half of the 14th century. So, so, so I think that comes early, that's much earlier than the influx of gold and silver from, from the Americas, you know, uh, and, you know, and so I would say, I mean, I do think the, you know, the, the discovery of the Americas and, you know, many of the kind of economic consequences of that globalization, it did, that did have profound impacts on Western European economy. I mean, some of the previous work that I've done, actually, with my, with different co-authors, with Daron Asimoglu and Simon Johnson, we did look at, you know, this integration of Europe into this bigger kind of global world and what the consequences of that were for institutions and economic dynamics. So I do, I'm not sure I would, I'm not sure I, I would, I'm not sure the, the kind of current balance of evidence supports that particular story, but I would agree that the discovery of the Americas brought, you know, think about Britain, you know, and you think about the emergence of modern kind of commercial institutions, you know, the corporate form, 
financial institutions, political revolution in the 17th century, you know, the emergence of constitutional rule after the glorious revolution, that comes in the context of very dynamic uh, trade expansion, development of mercantile interests, you know, the same way we were talking about how the dissolution of the monasteries facilitated the rise of the gentry, you could say the discovery of the Americas facilitated the rise of this mercantile class in London and Bristol and Liverpool and you know which had a big impact who played a very important role in development of modern economic institutions financial institutions commercial institutions and also you know pushed for political changes so so I I, I wouldn't you know I'm not I'm not arguing that those kind of channels are not important but I but I, but I'm not sure I you know, I'm not sure what the evidence is about the specific mechanism to do with 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 kind of gold and silver and inflation. You know, like economists are obsessed with this idea that money is neutral, you know, and that inflation doesn't matter for anything. So 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 many economists, probably myself included, you know, um, we we tend not to think so much about these monetary mechanisms. Um, macro macroeconomists worry about that a lot, but I guess in my space of social science, you tend to deal much more with you know what we call real things as opposed to monetary things. And you know perhaps we you know these sort of things are neglected in terms of research as a consequence. This summer, I've spent a lot of time reading Eric Williams and then responses to Eric Williams. Um, and you mentioned him in, in your work. To what extent, and I, I've been considering teaching, spending a bunch of time teaching his thesis. To what extent do you, do you think that his thesis is right? I think that's very interesting. I, I think that's, you know, that's, th this is thesis about the, how the slave trade and profits from the slave trade kind of facilitated the industrial revolution. I think I think the conventional wisdom amongst economic historians, you know, for example, David Eltis and and Stanley Engerman have wrote wrote quite a lot about this. Is that that you know that was probably not that specific mechanism was probably not so important, you know, because people. I've actually urged PhD students on several occasions to try to look at this in more detail. I, I would say it's never really been researched properly from my perspective, to be honest with you. I think it's actually interesting. I, I think it's waiting, it's awaiting a big discovery. I mean, I, I, I think it's like, I, you know, I just mentioned how it's pretty clear that this sort of globalization, you know, was affecting in, you know, the institutional evolution in Western Europe, not just England, but also in the Netherlands, you know, and, you know, which in some sense had capitalism even before, you know, England did. It had modern financial markets before England did. You know, it was a very developed commercial economy. It just never made the kind of breakthrough into industrialization in the 18th century the way... Hey, James, sorry to interrupt for a second. I just want to yeah. talk about that for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how do we distinguish... So I've also been reading... This, this guy Giovanni Arrighi recently, uh -huh, uh -huh. and he talks about financialization in, in Genoa and Tuscany way before even, even the Netherlands. And yeah. so I get, and I'm like really going down a rabbit hole with this reading. I'm struggling to figure out, you know, what distinguishes capitalism from pre-capitalism? How do we define the origins of like, is, is Italy already in the 14th century? I think in many ways they were, you know, I think if you look at Florence and, and Genoa and Venice, as you're saying, you know, they innovated all sorts of, you know, kind of modern financial instruments and financial institutions, but they never, 
made this jump to kind of, you know, mass production. I think, you know, we think of the Industrial Revolution as being this kind of mechanization of, you know, of many kind of production activities. We, you know, like it started in the textile industry, you know, but it's a whole kind of cluster of innovations that enormously raise labor productivity in, you know, in large spheres of the economy. And that never really happened in these Italian city-states. Like why it didn't, you know, I, why, you know, I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't think anyone really knows. You know, I think there's a sort of slow accumulation, you could say, of these different ideas and innovation. And then suddenly it just kind of takes off in England in the, in the middle of the 18th century in a way that, you know, could that have happened 200 years earlier in Italy? I'm not, I'm not sure anyone really knows the answer to that, you know, um, but I think you're right that there were many aspects of, you know, modern kind of economic modernity in these medieval city states, you know, there was, there were, you know, very sophisticated uh, practices in many ways, trade, finance, you know, etc. Uh, and maybe those innovations themselves were kind of critical for what happened later in England and um but 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 the, but the, that you know that but I you know to go back to the Williams thesis I, I you know I think you know in the English case you know you see the East India Company this kind of expansion into Asia you know there's all sorts of connections between trade institutional development uh, you know uh, in Britain for sure and I think nobody's really nailed the particular mechanism that Williams emphasised but I but I suspect there's going to be a lot of research on that in the next. You see, actually, my perspective, like on history now, is like if you look at what historians are writing about, people are publishing a lot of books on that topic, on this topic of what's the impact of colonialism and this global expansion of Britain on British society, British institutions, the Industrial Revolution. So I think it's a topic which is very hot. So I, 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 I think I'd be supportive of teaching, of you teaching it. I teach it, you know, I talk about it, and I usually say. This hasn't really, this is just waiting for a great paper, this topic. And it seems to be of particular import right now. And in particular, I'm thinking of a conversation around reparations, because if Williams is right, well, then it seems like maybe reparations are in order. Yeah, I'm not sure I have a view on that, but I, but I agree. <laughs> I agree that does okay. make it a very hot topic, yeah. I guess going off of, of the Williams thesis, one of the things that I'm having trouble with as I'm thinking about his thesis is that, you know, just to reiterate what it is, it's, it's that capitalism and industrialization wouldn't have really gotten off the ground without the transatlantic slave trade and this, the massive spillover effects from the slave trade. And then there's, there's a point when capitalism sort of needs to, to end slavery in order for capitalism to, to flourish. And one of the questions that I am seeing some debate around is some historians are saying, well, you know, slavery isn't actually capitalistic because there isn't competition in the labor market for, for higher wages. And so actually you've got this, you've got slavery and it's kind of opposed to capitalism rather than being a really important part of the growth of capitalism. I'm wondering if you can help me make sense of that. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I think slavery was pretty capitalistic. You know, I think that, you know, it, I mean, some people sort of say that, oh, well, capitalism is all about free markets. So, so if you have coercion, you know, you're coercing labor, then, 
then that's not capitalism. But I think, you know, capitalism always involves market power. And, you know, I would say that's just the sort of extreme, you know, in the limit, you know, you, you have slavery or something and, and, and kind of below that, there's all sorts of exercises of power. You know, think about South Africa, think about apartheid South Africa. You know, there was huge amounts of labor coercion used to repress black wages and control black people, pass laws, the, you know, the, 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 you know, all sorts of laws and institutions were used to keep wages low and kind of, you know, create a, a, a sort of docile, cheap labor force for white people. You know, that happened all over the colonial world. Was that capitalism? I think it was capitalism. You know, like in the United States today, you know, many economists are worried about the exercise of market power, you know, keeping wages low, making enormous profits. That's also power, it seems to me. So so I think it's a sort of continuum. There's like lots of gray areas. So I, I you know, I'd be happy using, I, you know, I think it's sort of unrealistic to think you can only talk about capitalism when there's no coercion, because there's always coercion in the exercise of power, it seems to me. And finally, the, the last question is, I'm rethinking, I only have like a week left before school starts, but I'm rethinking the way that I, I teach 10th grade. And I'm, I want to really dedicate much more time to the history of early capitalism. And I, and I want my colleagues to, to help me with it and also to, to do it too, the other teachers who teach 10th grade. Can you give me a good argument for why it's important to study the development of capitalism, why there are so many books being written about this period right now? Well, I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think there's very different sorts of reasons for that. You know, I mean, I would say, you know, I study a lot the developing countries. I work a lot in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, so I think it's very interesting, you know, to understand how all this prosperity came about, you know, in Western Europe and in the Western world. And what was it that really caused it? And, you know, what did it take for it to take off, you know? And, and you know, because there there's lessons for, you know, what do they have, to, what do you have to do in Africa? And, you know, what should African society or African institutions look like in order to facilitate prosperity? And, you know, so that that's one kind of motivation, you know, which may be completely different. I think, you know, I think at the moment, for example, in economics, you know, people are very concerned about inequality. I think we're all concerned as citizens about, you know, the incredible increase in inequality that's taken place in the Western world in the last 30 or 40 years. And whether or not, you know, that's something inevitable about the way the economy is organized. And I think it's interesting to look historically, to think about that, to think about you know, when did, when did, you know, what's the connection between capitalism and modern economic growth and inequality? And is inequality just a kind of necessary part of, you know, is it inevitable part of capitalism, you know, and the fact that inequality went down, you know, in the first half of the 20th century quite a lot, is that just a coincidence? You know, was that caused by the First and Second World Wars or the Great Depression? You know, it's a kind of blip. And now we're going back to the normal state of affairs with inequality rising inexorably. So I think that's a historical question, isn't it, about, about you know, about the connection between capitalism and, and inequality. So I think people are very, very interested in that. You know, think about Thomas Piketty's work. You know, his historical work on inequality has got a lot of people asking questions about that. It's attracted a lot of attention. So I think I think there's many reasons for studying the, the, the history of this. <laughs> Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it, that makes a lot of sense.